Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 44 of the Live Free Experience. I'm your host, Brianna Bowley, performance coach, human sponge, and founder of the Live Free Movement, a movement dedicated to showing the world what else is possible. And I'm going to make a couple of apologies. You know, I've been apologizing a lot of late. You know, I'm going to flip that. I'm going to say thank you for understanding. So thanks for understanding that on this particular episode, there's a bit of background noise. Uh, we kind of had to make do with what we've got. Uh, so you can hear, like, I think we've, we're accompanied by some tunes in the background for a bit. Uh, you can hear, like, barbells being dropped. Uh, you can hear people walking upstairs. And, of course, today's guest is quite um, quietly spoken to begin with. So whatever device you're listening to this on, uh, max it out. Turn that shit up. Uh, if you're listening through headphones like or earbuds, like, push them into your eardrums so that you don't miss a thing because I believe me, the info is too good to, to miss out on. Um, so we kind of had to make do. And I also want to say thanks for understanding that I sound like rat shit right now uh, because I'm, I'm kind of losing my voice. So I sound like I've got a peg on my nose. <sighs> it is what it is. So today's episode, I'm joined by Nick Hughes, um, elite athlete, former elite athlete and uh, MMA coach at Trinity MMA in South Australia, an incredibly knowledgeable guy. Uh, I kind of just had to like hang on for the ride with this one. Boy can talk. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I just had to hang on for the ride. Uh, I soaked in as much as I possibly could, hence the human sponge analogy. Uh you know, I think you're all going to fucking enjoy this one. As I said, an incredibly intelligent dude, incredibly switched on. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of uh, a fight camp done with so much um, structure and so thoroughly. So, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to let Nick do the talking and sit back, enjoy, chuck your slippers on, uh, Make yourself a cup of tea. And without further ado, let's get this show on the road. All right, Nick, how are we doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay today. I'm a little bit tired because Brando's in fight camp. A lot. <laughs> that's, that's basically how it goes. Heavy boys, camp. huh? Lots of people are in fight camp, but that's how it goes. What's that, sorry? Lots of people are in fight camp at yeah. the moment, but I won't give too much away. Okay. <laughs> cool. So we were chatting just before we hit record about your pretty extensive... Uh, Athletic career. Yeah. Can we get yeah, back Yeah, I'll try and recap it. So <laughs> I was a swimmer from the, a very young age, around six or seven years old, and that was probably the hardest training that mm -hmm. I've done throughout my life. I was a sprint, freestyle sprint butterfly swimmer. Yep. And I had a very smart coach. His name was Adrian Adam. He was the former Romanian Olympic coach. And to this day, I credit him with a lot of the mentality that I bring into things. But he had me cross-training in boxing and, and Muay Thai from a, a very young age to increase my rating and efficiency mm -hmm. through my arm speed. And I attained some pretty high levels in, uh, in swimming. However, my height didn't really attain those same high levels. So, yeah, I was looking for things that a little bit more weight class based, something that I could fit into. And boxing and Muay Thai was right there. So uh, I've been involved in an individual sport for a long time. That yep. can be pretty draining on yeah. a, a young person's psyche. So I was looking for team sports, something to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. Found rugby, mm -hmm. through rugby, found wrestling. Yeah. And as I was saying before, it was it's the hardest learning experience that uh, I went through as a young person, understanding the different levels of fight IQ and grappling IQ. I'd always found that in striking, up to that point in my knowledge base, people had a puncher's chance you could give and you could take, you could defend, you could strike back using relatively limited but sharp tools. And the more you knew about angles and timing and distance, then you could use those tools in different ways. But I always found that there was a lot of give and take. What I found with in wrestling is if someone is a division better than you in wrestling or is a higher caliber of grappling IQ, you lose 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. And that's very inspiring to try and reach that level of technique uh, to be on the same level as your peers and the people around you. And that process of doing that is yeah, pretty special. So I found jujitsu when I was 17, mm -hmm. uh, traveled quite a bit. I began to put 
skills together, a lot of cage grappling, a lot of understanding the different dynamics between pure grappling mm -hmm. and MMA applied grappling. There's a lot of dynamics yep. that change really drastically when you include striking, mm -hmm. especially mentalities. And yeah. techniques modify very heavily when you include the cage and the enclosure of the cage mm -hmm. uh, the space of the cage is very different to a ring yeah you can't corner people in the same way but it opens up different opportunities for angled attacks and different entries that you might not use in wrestling so much because different styles equate differently in yeah. mma if you look at some of the top olympic wrestlers using arm drags and peels and neckties to set up shots it's difficult to do that. If you commit two of your hands to a limb in MMA, you're getting struck with your opponent's free hand. So people who level change, double legs, single legs, body locks, those really high percentage takedowns in MMA. People who are good at doing that mm -hmm. in their wrestling career, they can translate that really well. Yeah. Uh, but there's still a pretty big learning curve. So yeah, I started fighting MMA, had an okay career, mm -hmm. but I don't ever really think I'm tough I've never thought that I'm tough I've competed a lot mm -hmm. but I've never been tough yeah uh, there was things that happened with me medically and I've talked before on on other podcasts and conversations about what I went through with uh, having a blood clot in my upper body really extensive blood clot and okay. near-death experience and a lot of things that came after that and that was when I was about 24 25 years old okay so it was only really after that time that I'd given myself any credence as to what I could possibly achieve academically or with some degree of confidence in intelligence. Mm -hmm. Because up until that point, if people had said to me, oh, you're, you're a bit of a smart guy, I would hear, oh, you're a really good athlete. Okay. Because you're very conditioned to believe that your strongest attribute is your only attribute, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you're an athlete. Yeah. In a very regimented system, train now, eat now, sleep now, do it again, and this is what you're meant to be doing. And I see people that come out of that, they're pretty de deteriorated mentally and they find a lot of struggle and finding pathways outside of that. And I suppressed a lot of my inner nerd for a very long time. And I always accredit Mike Turner uh, for helping me bring that out. He was, you know, one of the first people I had a real conversation with about Batman and comics and Superman and all this kind of stuff. Oh, I can be who I am. Yeah. But... I can also do this thing that I do mm -hmm. and make sure that I separate those two things uh, pretty heavily because identity and being an athlete can get a little bit risky and tricky. So, yeah, I, I retired from professional fighting and I was a good athlete, but I'm a much better coach mm -hmm. because I take coaching very seriously as a, as a job and as a role. It's not a privilege. You're not one of the boys, mm -hmm. you know. You know, in the group, you have to make some really tough decisions and you have to make really good, tough decisions. Did you um, need to get that? I don't know. I think they're just walking up the stairs. Oh, <laughs> the stairs there, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, sorry. I'm... No, that's okay. Uh, but, yeah, it is a responsibility. It's a... You don't own athletes. Yeah. They're not cattle. They are people. Yeah. And they have chosen to allow you to aid them. Mm-hmm. And if you view it like that and you put yourself into it, then your athletes and students are going to get some really good benefits. Yeah. Um, I've made mistakes. I see other people make what I would deem as mistakes, but it's their own life and their own learning processes. Um, one of the most interesting things... Sorry, if I'm rambling... No, no, it's perfect. Go no, for okay, it. So I, I'm, just, I, I'm just absorbing. I will ramble hard, <laughs> so you need to stop me from rambling. No, it's good. All right, so something that I've talked about before with a lot of people is mentalities pertaining to a successful athlete and mentalities pertaining to a successful coach. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're basically polar opposite. And this is why I believe that optimal scenario for... An MMA coach, and I don't. I speak from the perspective of MMA, not mm -hmm. necessarily from jiu-jitsu, not boxing, or Muay Thai. MMA specifically, definitely not gymnastics. I have no knowledge of these areas. Yeah. Um, but for MMA, I believe that the optimal coach is someone who has competed, mm -hmm. but does not currently compete. Yeah. Um, and I'll try to explain a little bit about why uh, an athlete in MMA needs a necessary level of ego. 
Mm-hmm. And when I say ego, I don't mean anything negative whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean a necessary le- level of self-belief and an understanding that they believe that they can defeat their opponent. Yeah. If they don't believe it, then they won't. It's not going to happen, yeah. Um, and they need to be somewhat selfish in a way. They need to have levels of selfishness. They need to have the best, their time needs to be the best quality time, the best training, the best food, the best opportunities, the best people around them. It needs to be about them. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that needs to be the case is because they solely face the consequences if they don't get the best of things and if they don't get optimal situations. And in MMA, there can be really drastic consequences. It's mm-hmm. nice. To think of MMA as a sport, it is a sport, mm-hmm. but it's also a fight. Yeah. And the mentalities that go into fighting are different than the mentalities that go into a 100 meter sprint. Mm. Um, so the consequences that fall on the athlete need to be taken very seriously. They need that. Mm-hmm. Who supplies it to them is their support network. Mm-hmm. So as a coach, your mentality shifts completely. Yeah. You are without ego, optimally, you are without ego. And you are selfless with your time. You live to provide the best of things to the athletes that choose to work with you. Uh, and the mistakes that sometimes get made and sort of break down in relationships between athletes and coaches, a coach, maybe I say a coach that hasn't competed, okay, they may put more of themselves themselves, their ego and their wants and needs into what their athlete does mm-hmm. than they think they're putting in. Yeah. So you hear a lot of things. You'll hear them say a lot of things. You'll hear people say a lot of stuff. And it's red flags. It's real red flags. Um, some negative things that I've come across and people have talked to me about is if, if you ever hear a coach saying we this is something that we do this is like a secret technique no one else knows about this you'll only get this information from me um if they denigrate others those guys over there they don't know what they're doing only we know what we're doing only i can tell you what you need to do oh if that guy had just done what i told him to do you know interjecting themselves into a situation that doesn't need to be if he had done what I, they told i told him to do then they would have won that you know? mm-hmm. or um taking ownership of a skill set that kid's hands, that was all me. Yeah. That was all me that I did that. You, know? um, you may think it laughable, but I've heard those exact phrases. Oh, I'm laughing because I've heard it, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's uh, a little bit confronting, mm. and it's not necessarily their fault mm-hmm. uh, because people uh, sort of see coaching as a follow-on from being around gyms mm-hmm. and being around other coaches. Being a good practitioner doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good coach. And most of the time, as it's been stated, it's, it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, if you don't take coaching seriously, then you could end up being a detriment to your athletes or at least eventually, maybe not in the acute uh, scenarios, you know, if you're invoking emotional responses from your athletes with the things that you say and do, you might get them to do some really great stuff. might not be very technically sound, but it might be what they needed in that moment in time. But over a longer period of time, that resentment starts to get harbored because the coach sort of sees them as not doing what they've been told to do. Um, the athlete starts to second guess whether this person has their best interests in mind and a breakdown of the relationship occurs. And unfortunately, I've seen it time and time again. And not just things that I've seen, but things that I've experienced. I've mm-hmm. played a lot of sports. So had a lot of good coaches, I've had a lot of bad coaches. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I begin to understand the necessity of being a good coach. You could get up in the morning as an athlete at 4am and go for a run and start your day as an athlete. You could get up in the morning as a coach and do nothing and uh, rock up at 7pm to take classes and uh, figure out what you're going to do. Or you can get up and start programming for the next six months. You can watch all the tapes on all your fighters' opponents. You can begin to think about how to better translate content for whatever stream of class that you're in charge of taking, whether that be striking, wrestling, jujitsu. start to play things in the long form. Uh, something that is extremely important that constantly gets overlooked is learning styles. So one of the things that I did, uh, I felt like it was my duty to do this, my responsibility, is I looked at communication and learning styles, personality identification, mm-hmm. how 
do different people learn? Yes. Uh, what is the optimal scenario for this individual to intake this information mm -hmm. and try to cater to them individually? I have a good platform to do that. Not everyone has a great platform to be able to do that uh, with one-on-one -on -one time with their athletes, but it's something that they should endeavor to do mm -hmm. because it's only going to benefit the athlete overall. Um, starting to become aware of these variables has some really good follow-on effects. If you're not aware of those variables, it's hard to sustain. It's yeah. really hard to sustain uh, an academy, uh, a good relationship with, with students. It's just difficult. It's a difficult job. Yeah. Uh, but it's one that I'm better at than anything else. It's where my passion is. And mm -hmm. if I, again, if I didn't believe that I was good at it, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Um, but you don't get good at things by waking up in the morning and not attempting to do them at all. Mm. And you've got to really put your time to it. Yeah, I wasn't definitely. very good at the start. I was... Uh, Mike Turner was one of the first people who put me in charge of him mm -hmm. and I was a young man uh, he was much to my senior yeah. physically mm -hmm. technically but at that point in time I was the strategist I was the guy who was watching tapes putting together game plans putting yeah. together class content and he identified that within me and said Nick can you please run my bike camp and I did. And I took it seriously. So it sort of followed on from there. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of variables, but you encounter those variables through experience as well. Mm -hmm. I think also that in this day and age with the capacity of people to look things up online, um, they will learn vicariously in the way that is best suited to them. Mm -hmm. So if you sort of can identify it within them, then... It's great. And it's really been highlighted as well that good coaches can bring about good things. My endeavor has never been to have my name out there. And that's, as you were talking about before, I don't put myself all over yeah. social media. I don't like being in photos. Um, maybe I'm probably hypersensitive to it because mm -hmm. of those things that I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. I don't want to fall victim to being the guy in all the photos and interjecting myself into an athlete spotlight when it should be all about them. If someone wants to critique my work as a coach, they should critique the athletes that I produce. They probably shouldn't be looking at me mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah. Um, if they want to, they can look me up or they can come and say hello and they can roll or come have a conversation or whatever that may be. Every, every single person I've had a conversation with is awesome. And I've know, I know a lot of people within the industry from promoters to coaches and they're all pretty good. Mm -hmm. You make some really good connections within the industry. Mm, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Wow, you just slammed me with info. Where do I go from there? No, I don't know. Like, this is like, I told you I'd ramble. Stop it's me. good. I'm just soaking it all up. If you let me ramble, I will ramble. It's good. It's yeah. good. So well, how... I don't get a lot of opportunities to talk about coaching specifically. Yeah. When yeah. most people ask me about what we're doing, I talk uh, more about the program currently that we're involved in, what we're doing yeah. triangles or whatever that may be at the time we are actually currently doing triangles so i was present in my mind uh but there's yeah there's there's always more there's yeah. always a lot of ideas behind training and concepts and all that kind of stuff so how long have you been coaching for i've been coaching since i was about 24 okay yeah, and so i'm 30 now okay so six yeah. years yeah cool yeah. beautiful so you said that you uh I, I presume like you're talking about you know coaches getting up in the morning and and going and looking at opponents' footage and, mm -hmm. and planning out the next six months and all of that sort of thing. I presume that's something that you're actively doing. Yes, if definitely. Yep. So can you talk us through like that six month and without giving too much away, of course, mm -hmm. but um, how do you kind of go about laying out that six month sort of training We have schedule? to get a, a timeline of events mm -hmm. and you have to look at what those priority events may be. So for example, we have grappling industries that's coming up and we mm -hmm. have agc that's coming up on the stream of jujitsu mm -hmm. for amateur and professional mma events we have eternal that's coming up yeah and we have dfc that's coming up mm -hmm. they're all in re relatively close-knit dates yeah so two months ago uh before ryan had fought on eternal and that kind of stuff that was encompassed within our plan we started to look at content streams for jiu-jitsu that were more conducive to a rule set like Grappling Industries mm -hmm. or a rule set like AGC. Uh, 
we start to go long form, what do students, what is uh, priority? What do students really need to know about those scenarios? Uh, the variables, what it's gonna be like competing, uh, concepts and ideas for that type of content got shared within the coaching group because I'm not a dictator. Mm -hmm. I, I wanna make sure it's referenced between our entire coaching group. Mm -hmm. And then we start to put it into practice. We start to execute. But we can't do that so readily for the MMA stream because we don't have matchups yet. Mm -hmm. We know that matchups are looming. We know that there may be an opportunity for that, but we don't know who mm -hmm. we're matching up for. Yeah. So what we'll do is instead of going through a fight camp, uh, high intensity theme where we'll go through a rep phase, a simulation phase, a drilling phase, or a drilling phase and a simulation phase. Um, sorry, that's probably part of it. It's rep, drill, simulation mm -hmm. uh, in that order. Uh, we start to look at a technical theme. Okay, what are the scenarios that have become been coming inspiring and inviting that we've been deficient in? What are those specific areas and what do we need to know in order to you know, fill those gaps so we work on that specifically outside of fight camp time? That's also when uh, numerical gains are made sort of within strength, within power, within speed. We always ask the athletes to focus more on their strength and conditioning outside of fight camp mm -hmm. so that they come into fight camp the best athlete that they can possibly be with accrued skills mm -hmm. and bedded skills because we're doing technical themes outside of fight camp. So we look at the timeline, we look at when we're in fight camp, when we're out of fight camp, what are the necessary things we need to know? Yeah. And then how good can we be moving into fight camp? And then we sharpen the specific skills that we get from the footage that we watch on the opponents that we're matched up with. We rep those specific skills, we drill those specific skills, and then we simulate. That's, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, simulation is incredibly important. Uh, it helps with structure. So mm -hmm. commonly, if you see someone who is a little bit new to MMA, they'll start running. Mm -hmm. It can also be an indicator of um, possible lack of mental preparation mm -hmm. as well, they'll break from their structure. So you know one of the, you know, the first things that you get taught when you're learning how to strike, learning how to box, what a stance is, what a structure is, why you stand, how you stand, and all this kind of thing. When people get really excited or they haven't simulated, mm -hmm. or they don't understand why that is important, when they hit someone, they will run at them. And they will leave themselves incredibly out of structure. Or when they get hit, they will run away mm -hmm. or they'll ball up. Yep. Um, and that can happen to good fighters mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. um, so that simulation phase is very important. Yeah, so that's basically a loose sort of structure without getting too specific. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, wow, there's also a lot of content that needs to be addressed uh, from a, a little bit of a deeper level as well uh, I'll, I'll give i'll try and give you some examples of what i mean by that um so from a jujitsu concept uh people learn a pass mm -hmm. okay they learn a triangle and an arbor they learn a guillotine they might learn things in a sequence as well what you have at that point in time is you have a series of movements you don't have techniques yet mm -hmm. you have movements you have movements that don't have context and they don't have the capacity for problem solving, central problem solving. So I'm achieving this movement, something happens that is against my sequence and I can't problem solve it mm -hmm. because I don't know what it is. So the foundation that gives you techniques is concepts, yeah. ideas, alignment, spine theory, um, things like... Uh, disaligning the spine to make someone weaker, taking their elbows away from their body to make their arms more prone, uh, and understanding how to relate that to a specific technical chain that you're doing. Uh, when you have a building block foundation of concepts and ideas, then movements stem from that foundation, from that concept, now you have a technique. Mm -hmm. Because you can now use that foundation building block to relate problem solving to. Okay, so I'm trying to triangle someone and this is the movements that I know and it's not working. Why isn't it working? All right, well, I check the concept. I'm not breaking their spinal alignment enough. 
how can I achieve that? Well, I can cross their arm further. I can pay more attention to the way that their head is tilted. I can gain more angle. I can align my body better with my hips and now I'm problem solving. You didn't do that off the series of movements that you learned. You did that with a fundamental concept that you've accrued uh, and taught mm-hmm. as well. So that's how techniques evolve. Mm-hmm. But if you don't spend a concerted amount of time translating the concept, people can lose the context. Yeah. And guess what? Boring. Mm. It's not flashy. It's not super cool looking. Um, and I know that a lot of people get kind of worried that students and athletes might not enjoy the concepts so much. But it's a price you're going to have to pay for long-term development. And mm-hmm. you can make a lot of short-term development if you learn stuff and things mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> but you will struggle to make long-term development if you don't have that bedrock of true concept and theory mm. um, that has been accrued so i in my general approach to jiu-jitsu specifically i try to make sure that we give the appropriate amount of time to the concept before we enter into a specific technical chain and then we can get to the higher levels of that chain with a lot of context mm-hmm. and a lot of capacity for problem solving. Yeah. Cool. So in terms of the, like, outside of the combat sports specific stuff, the strength and conditioning and all of that side of things, mm-hmm. are you guys planning that as well or is that more of a, like, go and let people... We have a lot of good knowledge within our academy. Mike Turner, myself, Anthony Bino, who's a full-time personal trainer, Jake Chinawath, who has empowered himself with knowledge. They are fountains of knowledge when it comes to strength and conditioning and periodization and understanding from a fighter-specific level. Mm -hmm. We generally advise that our athletes go to them Mm -hmm. for their perspective on what strength and conditioning can be because it's just... A lot to ask of a personal trainer mm, outside definitely. of that realm to make a really specific periodized training program for a, a fighter, mm-hmm. uh, someone who has to fight, uh, especially for someone who has to fight MMA. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, if you're doing Muay Thai, you're doing wrestling, you're doing Jiu-Jitsu, you're competing a ton mm-hmm. throughout the year. If you're an amateur professional MMA fighter, you're fighting probably a maximum of three times per year mm-hmm. if you're smart. Yeah. Uh, if you're taking the correct matchups, which is your coach's role yeah. to aid you in, and your, or your manager's role to aid you in. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is that? That's because there's so much to learn. Mm. And this MMA is such an instance-based mm. sport where any small thing can happen and the dynamics change like that. So if you're doing Muay Thai, and then you also train some wrestling, and you also train some jiu-jitsu, you're not actually training MMA yet mm. until MMA is your full-time pursuit. Because yeah, everything's going to come out very disjointed and you're mm. going to find yourself confused. Maybe you fought and after the fight, that's what you'll be saying. You'll be saying, oh man, it just feels like everything's not quite in place. Like mm-hmm. I can't think of it as one thing yet. And I've heard it before. Mm. And uh, I think, again, it's probably the coach's job to explain those things. Yeah. There's, there's simple dynamics changes that are, that are really, really obvious when you do MMA full-time, but not so obvious if you don't, mm-hmm. especially if you've competed heavily in an aspect yeah. of MMA. But yeah, strength and conditioning, we sort of draw upon the resources that we have mm-hmm. uh, because they're very professional and very knowledgeable. Yeah. 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 Just touching on what I was saying, the, some of the dynamics that change, I'll give you a quick example, just a basic dynamic change that should be quite obvious. When you're on the top, like uh, inside someone's full guard in a jiu-jitsu competition, no matter what rank you're in, mm-hmm. um, because of the nature of the rules and grappling, the onus is generally on the top game player to progress their position. Like that's how you are allotted more time to stay on the floor. And you may have attained the top position via no effort from yourself. They may pull guard. Mm-hmm. You know, now you're in the full guard and now the onus is on you as a top game player to start to pass the guard and start to advance your positions and hunt submissions. The bottom game player can be more passive, yeah. wait for opportunities and use good you know, fundamental jiu-jitsu to gain their pathways, get inside space, hook sweep, armbar, whatever their specifics may be. There must be a reason why they pull the guard. So 
the major point being the onus is on the top game player. In MMA, if you're on top, you got there because something good happened. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're on bottom, you got there because something bad happened. Yeah. Generally, you don't pull guard in mm -hmm. MMA. And that has a lot to do with judging. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with the timer. And mm -hmm. it also has a lot to do with gravity. Yeah. Okay? Because if you punch up at someone, it's like a mosquito. You have no leverage. Yeah. If you punch down at someone, it's like thunder. Yeah. You have all the gravity, all the leverage. Um, so the onus then changes and the distance changes. So instead of the top game player being the one who has to progress positionally, it's up to the bottom game player. Yeah. And that urgency in a guard position to achieve an objective, either creating an angle to sweep, creating an angle to submit or escape or to stand or to scramble. If you're not doing one of those things, you're losing, mm -hmm. quote unquote. And then there's a timer going. Mm -hmm. So you either got clipped, you got taken down, you lost a scramble, now you're on bottom and it's on you to make something happen. So that urgency and that pressure comes up and you mm -hmm. hear coaches yelling ridiculous things like, get up. Yeah. That's my favorite. <laughs> a lot of them, some technical, you know, pathway to do that they want yeah. to get up yeah yeah they yeah. really do they want to do you proud and get up but you know achieve an underhook frame dump the head something give them something yeah um but that's why the urgency is there mm -hmm. from the athlete and the coach mm -hmm. because the dynamic has changed mm. and the distance has changed mm. i can sit in full guard use my posture and anti-submission to land shots on you land devastating elbows and i'm winning the fight i don't yeah. have to do so much um, so the way you train changes mm -hmm. your goals when you're in the guard change you add cage variables and you add the fact that your blood pressure goes spiking when you are up and down off the floor you may be very very accustomed to a certain energy system uh, you can breathe on your terms where if you're a pure striker you're probably more accustomed to a, a lactic energy system if you're a wrestler or a grappler you're probably more prone to being passive off your back if you're a heavy jiu-jitsu player all of those things at the same time force your body into learning a new style of stamina mm -hmm. and that's mma and mm. um, you must address it you mm -hmm. must train in mma to be successful in mma so we have a full curriculum at uh, trinity which starts with fundamental striking. You can make your way to intermediate striking. You can make your way to advanced striking. Mm -hmm. We have wrestling, no gi jiu-jitsu. Gi jiu-jitsu if you like. Mm -hmm. It's not a priority, but it's good. Mm -hmm. uh, There's a base of things to do if you like gi jiu-jitsu. Mm -hmm. It's not mandatory. Um, but then we have fundamental MMA as well. And fundamental MMA is where the first place that we address the linking aspects of MMA, how to strike into takedowns efficiently. Efficiently, sorry. Mm -hmm. Cage grappling from all aspects. Standing, grounded, uh, escape, control, defense, efficiency on mm -hmm. the cage as well. How to um, play a broader strategy and tactic utilizing the cage. And those ground-based dynamics that I was talking about before. When you've been to all those classes, when you've shown aptitude, progression, and you're also giving back uh, to those classes, then you are eligible to come up to the advanced class. Mm -hmm. You come in as a sparring partner for the guys who are designated in fire camp. Um, we see what you like, see how you're putting it together. You have to go through the shock of sparring MMA. Then, and only then, once you've been part of that advanced group for a while, then you get looked at as a possible candidate for an amateur bout. Before that happens, we need to talk about what your weight class is, we need to begin to understand you, mm -hmm. your personality, and how you're going to approach competing in MMA specifically. So we have them do a trial weight cut to an agreeable weight, not to a ridiculous weight. And then a day after that trial weight cut, after they go through their appropriate refueling, we have a trial bout with someone that has been going through fight camp with them or someone from a you know a friendly gym. Mm -hmm. And we make it a little bit more competitive environment. You know, they get taped up, they get warmed up appropriately. There's a couple of people around the cage yelling silly things. Uh, and we see how they can compete in that environment. If they do well, if they respond well, 
will start to look for an amateur bout for them. Yeah. If it was more difficult for them than they once thought it would be, we won't look for matchups yet. We'll readjust because we don't want to give someone a less than optimal scenario. There's mm -hmm. one winner and one loser. Yeah. You may go in there and lose the fight, but if you were given every chance to be as successful as possible and you get a positive experience out of it, it was worth your time. Mm -hmm. If you look back and know every stone was not unturned, that's super negative. Yeah. Then, you, then you, it gets highlighted to you what the deficiencies were. Mm -hmm. This person didn't have my back. They told me I was good when I wasn't. There's a lot of bad stuff that can happen. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very difficult to get out of that mind frame yeah, once you're thrust into it. Definitely. And there was never really an amateur system yeah. when, when we started competing. So a lot of people from this state had to go straight to a professional level and you saw it play out. Mm. You know, that was the first time they'd ever attempted yeah. MMA. And it was disjointed and then you, know, you didn't see them again. Mm -hmm. You just didn't see them again. Yeah. There's a lot of people who are around who are pioneers and you see them now and you're like, wow, they were they were they were actually the guys, the people mm -hmm. that made this all possible for us. Like yeah. Kim Robinson and um, Brad Thompson. Mm -hmm. I like Brad Thompson a lot. He was he was the first guy I sort of fanboyed over. I was like, wow. Um, Brad is going into state to fight someone, and I watched it on TV. That was a shocking thing. Wow, he's from South Australia. He's yeah, from our state. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, and it was same the same with Kim Robinson. I remember meeting Kim Robinson at a uh, you know the jujitsu competition, and a week before that, I saw him armbar a guy on TV in a cage. It was surreal. I was like, wow, these guys can actually do these things so when i think of you know back and also dave DeConti as well and, and mike turner those types of guys have been doing this for an extremely long time mm -hmm. and they're a bank of knowledge a wealth of knowledge all of them if they turned around and looked back said they probably did really good things and probably made some mistakes as well mm -hmm. the charge is on us now to evolve to something that's really conducive to progression mm -hmm. and that's probably my driving force of my day-to-day -day activities. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to progress and make sure that the athletes have optimal scenarios, um, physically and mentally as well, because there's yeah. so much that goes into it. I understand what it's like, uh, so I go to a great extent to make sure they're supported appropriately. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's yeah. why I think that someone who has competed but doesn't anymore is yeah. probably optimal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you, met, you, you touched on very, very briefly there, the mental aspect. Mm -hmm. How much sort of focus on that are you putting into the mental side of things? Um, every single day in training is conducive to uh, probably 50 to 60% of what any athlete's capacity is. Mm -hmm. um, they might just be really good at stuff. Mm -hmm. They might be really used to putting the axe to the grind and they may have a comfort zone in being uncomfortable, mm -hmm. physically uncomfortable, mm -hmm. so that doesn't deter them so much. But there's always things going on in people's life, things that they do like, things that they don't like that are affecting them more than they realize physically, mm -hmm. more than they realize what affects you mentally in turn manifests physically. Mm -hmm. um, so we're constantly in communication with them. I always ask them to give me a number. If you, if you ask someone, how are you feeling today? What is the answer you get? No one wants to be that guy who says, oh man, I feel like shit, you know, this is, I hate everything, life sucks. I always say the same thing. Good. Uh, yeah, I'm not bad. Yep. So I asked them, give me a number. Yep. What's your number? Give me a number. Mine. Yeah. Uh, my number today eight. Yeah, that's fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Well, let's go have a have a train, and we'll see how we're at later. If I if I ask them, hey, what's your number? Now oh, four or five. So let's go in the office. Let's have a chat. Let's mm -hmm. talk about what's going on. Cool. Uh, we don't have to train every day to get progression out of every day mm -hmm. because there's days. When you simply want, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but we preach composure mm -hmm. at this academy, and we preach taking a vast amount of emotion out of competitive environments because your adrenaline is going to do it for you. There is an, an inherent emotional response that you're going to get from fighting. Yeah, you're definitely. not going to be able to stop it. Mm -hmm. However, if you're trained 
in being composed and you have a precise idea about what you're attempting to achieve. If you have a pathway, if you have a structure, what you're trying to achieve in any given round and any given fight, when your opponent inevitably takes you away from that, you have something to work back towards. Yeah. Whereas if you go in there wide-eyed and you just want to wreck and you just want to tear, when you start to face adversity, that's not what you're visualizing mm. every night when you're going to sleep and your heart was beating a thousand miles an hour. You were thinking about winning. Mm -hmm. All those things you were going to do to win. Mm -hmm. The doubt creeps in when you don't feel so good. Yeah. No one I've ever known feels amazing on fight night. Mm -hmm. No one. Yeah. So they're always going to be working under their full capacity. Mm -hmm. So we need to get them there and we need to get them understanding that that's what's going to happen and we need to get them composed there. So I mentioned before about rep phase. Mm -hmm. Rep phase is confidence. Mm -hmm. So confidence in the fact that we know what we're attempting to achieve and we're working on specific skills that are going to help us achieve that. Yep. Every rep that they do of that specific technique or that specific scenario that we've watched tape on and we're getting them to drill, that gives them confidence. Yeah. Drill phase tests that confidence Yeah. because now it's live. Mm -hmm. Now they have to execute against someone who knows exactly what they're going to try and do. Simulation is mental. Mm -hmm. Simulation is we come out, we touch gloves in the center of the cage and we go. Mm -hmm. What happens now? That is the lost factor of most training and the most important phase in fight camp the simulation. Yeah. Um, that's when composure is bred. That's where it's cultivated. Yeah. It's through the simulation phase. Mm -hmm. um, but being in constant communication with the athletes and understanding where they're coming from mm -hmm. uh, aids you to help them mentally with their approach. Yeah. Uh, and everyone's different. Mm -hmm. So personality, identification, learning styles. I think something that's very interesting is a, a lot of the time when you sit someone down in an official capacity, like, okay, so I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to sit you down and we're going to talk about how you're going. That immediately puts them in a state of defensiveness because they don't want to have anything wrong with them. Yeah. They don't want to be accused of being not great. Oh, I'm fine. What are you talking about? We're not talking about this. <laughs> Sometimes when you say things to people in passing, or if you just identify a trait in someone that is maybe a strength, and you say that to them, to them at a specific time, you know they've just finished around. You say, "Wow, you uh, you really bit down your mouthpiece there, and you showed what you're capable of. I've, I've seen you do this before. It's a really good thing that you have the capacity to do." Make sure you remember that. Remember what that felt like. Mm -hmm. Believe that you can do it again. Mm -hmm. Because they just did it. Mm -hmm. They just showed themselves. Mm -hmm. And something that uh, I will say if someone has a particularly good round or they were putting together techniques well, I'll say to them, you just showed yourself how to win this fight. Mm -hmm. Because they did. But it's just been highlighted to them that they did. Yeah. And they'll take that away and they'll remember that. I don't yeah. have to sit them down in a room and talk mm -hmm. to them about it in order to do it. If I really believe that something's wrong, or if I believe that I can help someone with something, give them some time off, afford them to the sounding board or something like that, I'll take them in. If they're telling me they're at two or three, uh, let's let's go have yeah. coffee or something, and let's just get out of here. Yeah. Um, because it can happen. Life yeah. happens. Yeah, I've definitely. Had good days and I've had bad days. I don't have good days every day. Sometimes my comics don't come in and shit, and <laughs> bad things start happening. <laughs> Oh, well. Okay, cool. So um, I'm a big believer that how we do anything is how we do everything, right? Mm -hmm. So is this how your brain works outside of MMA? Like, is this is this how you yeah. sort of go about life? Because you're very thorough. Yeah, I, I think it is, but the dial switches up and down. I can't be like this all the time. I think that I gravitate towards things that have creative outlets because mm -hmm. everything that I do in my professional world is quite analytical. Yes. But even with those elements, you know, it's, it's Batman comics, it's detective work. I like 
I like Warhammer. I like strategy games. I like Dungeons and Dragons, which is very analytical, uh, very lateral thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like you know, board games and that stuff. And all of that is a creative outlet, and it's a recreational outlet, but it's all still very analytical and very in-depth. So yeah, maybe, maybe I am like that, but I just sort of don't view it yeah. that way. I guess yeah. my downtime is my downtime because mm-hmm. I'm not constantly... Um, I don't have to attempt to evolve Dungeons & Dragons. The game is how it is. Yeah. And I like it like that. Yeah. 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 Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, I had a really beautiful question just pop up. But it's yeah. gone. It'll come back. It'll come back. Um, so, actually, curious question, and I don't know how you feel about this question, but you commented this morning on the. I, I shared a video of uh, Connor and Kaviv uh, in their little uh, press conference face-off, and you just commented with a with a blank face. What are your thoughts? Who's going to take it? And and you could analyze that till the cows come home, but. All you can really say is they both have really strong pathways to win. Mm-hmm. They both really do. Connor, Connor may have actually had a conversation about this the other day. Remember the whole Jose Aldo thing? Mm-hmm. How everyone was like, no, 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 he's, this is it. You know, all the talk and everything's going to catch up with him. And then the knockout happened and he shocked the world. And after that, everyone was sort of waiting for Connor to lose. And they did. Mm-hmm. He lost to Nate Diaz. Mm-hmm. And he also lost to Floyd Mayweather. Mm-hmm. And now time has gone past and we're sort of in that same situation again with the whole Jose Aldo thing where people have forgotten mm-hmm. or has this been like a bruise? Has Connor played the biggest con of, of his entire life and just convinced people that he's not as good as they think he is or he's not as good as the hype is? And then he's just going to come out and shock everyone all over again. You know, there are there are really strong pathways for him to to win this bout. And if he wins by knockout early, it's going to be very shocking, very shocking to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what he's done in the past and what he's been able to achieve uh, with mental warfare has been probably more uh, effective mm-hmm. in the past than it has been with Khabib. Mm-hmm. That speculation, um, but it's been harder. I think it's been harder for Connor to you know find Definitely. find ways to attack. Could be maybe language barrier, mm-hmm. possibly. Um, yeah. But you know, didn't stop him with Jose Jose Aldo. Sorry, it's Jose Aldo. Uh, I just think that you know, it's if you want to grapple someone for five rounds, and that is your pathway to victory, you have to be. Be. You have to be a machine. Mm-hmm. It's the harder path mm-hmm. to winning the fight. Yeah. If your idea is that you're going to knock them out early, that's the somewhat easier pathway, mm-hmm. unless it doesn't happen. Yeah. Because if it doesn't happen, you're reaching for it, then it's going to get real elusive mm-hmm. and real difficult. So, yeah, all you can really state is they both have extremely strong pathways to winning this fight. Mm-hmm. If, if you broke it down, you said, we started to ask questions. Can Khabib submit Connor? Yeah, sure he can. Mm-hmm. Can Connor knock out Khabib? Yeah, sure he can. What's going to happen? Mm. You can't say that. Yeah. yeah. But the only thing I will say is Connor does have a knack of shocking people. Mm-hmm. And it feels very much like the Jose Aldo fight. It feels a lot like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I think the reason why I was a little bit stone-faced on the whole... Conor McGregor thing is like you, you can never speculate what people are like as people mm-hmm. if you see snapshots in time of them. Yes. Uh, especially competitive athletic snapshots of time. I think Ronda Rousey was a massive victim of this. Yes, definitely. Um, people were looking at her in her moments in which she was getting into a zone which was necessary for her to be a successful athlete, mm-hmm. the most successful athlete yeah. of the time. And people would judge her based on her most competitive streak and competitive side. I would yeah. hazard to guess that if you were in Ronda Rousey's circle, you were her sister, niece, mm-hmm. cousin, friend, mm-hmm. you wouldn't think that way about her. Mm-hmm. You'd probably see a completely different perspective. I mean, 
Because you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would speculate that it's similar with people like John Jones and Conor McGregor. Absolutely. However, the perspective that is most broadcast is their most negative traits, mm. or at least the most negative things that they present to the mm -hmm. sport of MMA and the image that they represent globally. Because it's such a good sport. Mm -hmm. And it unfortunately has this image right now of being tarnished mm -hmm. by specific guys. Mm -hmm. It's redeemable. It's been redeemed by other people. Mm -hmm. If you look at George St. Pierre and um, his shining example of it, but also guys like Daniel Cormier and people that carry themselves really well, like Demetrius Johnson. There's guys out there, and Henry Suhudo as well. There's guys out there who, and there's actually a lot of female fighters who don't buy into the bullshit. Mm. Like Rose. Doug mm. Rose. Oh, yeah. Eunice. Yeah. If she isn't the shining example of what an mm -hmm. MMA athlete could be, I, I find that there's less bullshit there mm -hmm. in uh, a lot of the female ranks than there is in the male yeah, ranks. Absolutely. I, I think. Conor McGregor set a very dangerous precedent. I, maybe I'm putting too much on Conor. Maybe it wasn't just Conor. Maybe it was Tito Ortiz. Mm -hmm. Back when he started it, mm -hmm. uh, the whole Huntington <laughs> bad boy image, it was negative aggression that got him more opportunities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had a guy like uh, Gegard Musasi come out and say, shit, like... I don't think I can match it, you know, like I'm a skilled middleweight, but I'm going to have to start talking massive amounts of shit if I want the same amount of money that Connor's making or the same opportunities that Connor's making. And you've got Demi and Maya sitting there who's the most humble, respectful, and one of the most knowledgeable and strategic guys in the roster. And he's just sitting there like, oh, you know, I don't really like to talk badly about my opponents. And people are like, boo, 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 Demi and Maya, say something bad about this guy. That's mm -hmm. what I want to see. Yeah. I've said this before. I don't really... <laughs> I don't really care what fans want to see. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not a fan. And the people that I work with from day to day aren't fans. I find it... Look, I find it difficult to be in big crowds of people anyway. But I, I find it difficult to be at fight shows. Because people say some of the most disgusting things you'll ever hear. Mm -hmm. And you constantly find scenarios like, I oh, smash him, kill him, yeah, fuck him up, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, who are you sitting next to? The kid's mom? Mm -hmm. The kid's dad? Mm -hmm. The kid's partner? Mm -hmm. It's bad. Mm. It's bad. They're humans, they're people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's that whole aspect to it mm -hmm. that I think has been more amplified because of what Connor's brought to it. Mm -hmm. And it sort of unfortunate thing probably John Jones more specifically is it sort of shows that if you're a really good athlete like it's the whole jock scenario the the high school jock scenario like if you're a really good athlete we're gonna make some exceptions for you mm -hmm. and you can uh, do some really bad things that no one else is allowed to do and uh, no we'll just uh, sweep that under the rug because you make us a lot of money and yeah. you're really good at what you do and that's the precedent that was set and it filtered down the roster mm -hmm. but yeah I mean they should really just promote Rose more how many posters is Rose on? Mm, yeah <laughs> mm, yeah that's it that's it yeah there's some positive characters out there mm, definitely like, I, I, yeah I, I, as you said about the, the women I feel that the women um, to generalise to steeply generalise I feel that the women are they're more for they want to get in they want to fight they want to do their thing. Whereas the boys, is, it, it, it seems to be, be, be becoming more of like a, a WWE kind of entertainment-based. Um, male MMA has had a little bit more time to evolve mm -hmm. than female MMA. And female Granted. MMA is still more skill or skills-oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, you still have what you had a little while ago mm. in, in the male ranks, which is you have standouts in specific areas like mm -hmm. Ronda Rousey, who was a judo exponent. Yeah. Um, you had Holly Holm, you know, boxing and kickboxing world champion. Mm -hmm. um, these people are, you know, uh, Jermaine Durandamere as well. They're standouts in aspects mm -hmm. of MMA and they're transitioning to MMA. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, that still happens in the male ranks, but nowhere near as much in the female ranks. Yeah. So there's still a lot of emphasis 
on technical evolution mm -hmm. in the female ranks of MMA. And I really believe that that's probably why there isn't so much more room for BS unless mm. people are stand out far and away better than other people. And that, that, that really still happens in the uh, in the female ranks. But Rose is, I, I keep saying Rose because she she progressed her skill set so mm. drastically. She yes. evolved. Yeah. She became a very well-rounded mixed martial artist. She figured herself out what her strengths were. She got her mentality correct, which was not easy for her, mm -hmm. considering her situations. And what she's been able to come up with is a respectful champion of the sport who is incredibly technically sound. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. like, this, this pathway is there. It's available to them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that is probably why. Uh, Mm. Female MMA is less adversarial, adversarial, mm -hmm. or less uh, publicized as being adversarial. Or, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's no Conor McGregor's just yet. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, your thoughts on, and we're kind of digressing here, but that's all right. Um, Chris Cyborg, female Chris Cyborg. Mm -hmm. What is it, unbeatable or? She's been beaten in Muay Thai. Has she? Yeah. There you go. She's See, I don't know much of her uh, history yeah. pre. MMA. She's uh, she's like John Jones. She's uh, an athlete within a division that can't mm. handle her as an athlete. Mm -hmm. no. She's she's been she's popped for PEDs, mm -hmm. um, as have a lot of the guys. Mm -hmm. But is she not still the best athlete? She's. I think Ronda Rousey is. You could probably make the same argument for her. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people that she fought, she was just far and away a better athlete mm -hmm. than they were. Yeah. But yeah, Cyborg, as of right now, is the probably the best female mixed martial artist who's ever existed. Mm -hmm. uh, however, she exists in a weight class that hasn't had as much contention. Mm. You know, if she was bantamweight. Uh, there would be no question. Mm. She just she would max everyone, but she's in featherweight, and they have to scramble to mm. find her. How when was the last time she defended? Mm. Yeah, that was the Holly Holm fight. And that was a while ago. Yeah, you know it's hard to find her opponents mm. uh, because a lot of people a aren't her weight mm -hmm. and b aren't gonna fight her. Well, they've got the featherweight uh, women coming through on the the Ultimate Fighter series now. Mm. Yeah. Would you think that any of them would step to the... Yeah, I mean, that's the... Uh, I actually... Any any female in the featherweight division, I'm like, ooh, like... You see any of the featherweights in Invicta? No, not really, no. Yeah, have a look at Invicta. There's... It's always a good indicator. I mean, obviously, a lot of the featherweights that are on tough right now from... Or signed by Invicta... Mm, were signed yeah, from Invicta yeah. or Bellator. But it's a good indicator of where the level's at. Mm. Uh, what the divisions may look like in the future in the UFC. Mm. But there's no, I feel like there's no comparison no, between no one, Cyborg no one's gonna, and... No one's going to pop up and be like, yep, yeah. I'll, I'll take you. Yeah. I'll take you, Cyborg, because no, that's not going to happen. Mm. Uh, it's, it's hard because if it doesn't happen, that division will fail. Mm -hmm. mm. You just won't be around anymore. Yeah. If no one beats her, it mm. won't be relevant. Yeah. If someone beats her, they'll be like, whoa, this person beat Cyborg. Okay. Female featherweight division is now on fire. Mm. That's what happened with the bantamweight division. Yeah. If Ronda Rousey had retired undefeated, it would have been incredibly detrimental mm -hmm. to female yeah. MMA. Absolutely. Um, she needed to be defeated mm -hmm. in order for that division to thrive, and now it has. And the most evolution that's taken place has taken place in that division over the last two years, mm -hmm. um, barring Rose, because Rose is <laughs> a different beast. Yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Joanna also helped it along. Yeah, definitely. When Joanna when beat She's Carla, about to... She's going up, isn't she, for Valentina? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah. Fun fights, but, man, she's she's starting to take damage now, Joanna. Mm. Uh, but she also deals it. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. But when she beat Carla Esparza, Carla Esparza for so long was like, oh, she's the best, you know, Invicta champion. I was going to beat her. When she beat her, it was like, so decisive and so confronting i was like okay wow this is evolution mm. all over again and then she pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and then mm. rose had to rise up to that evolution and that's how it happens mm -hmm. dominant champions who then get defeated that's mm -hmm. how it 
that's mm. after races. Yeah. Um, and the worth of a championship belt generally is um, probably not just the title holders, but the times that it's been defended. So if you get a belt, and it's a hotcake belt, heavyweight belt is a bit of, was a bit of a hotcake belt. Mm -hmm. It is a bit of a hotcake belt. But if it's defended nine times, ten times, mm -hmm. that becomes a really relevant champion and a really relevant belt. Mm -hmm. Because if you get a contender who is a legit contender, you know, oh, wow, that's a really good matchup. That's a big championship about mm -hmm. because it's been defended nine times by a dominant champion who everyone knows now household name undisputed and now there's a legit contender and everyone wants to watch that fight mm. everyone wants to watch that fight uh, Cormier is a good example he's, he's the perennial contender no one sees him as the champion yeah he is yeah he's one of the best ever mm -hmm. but they they feel like he's the name that you could put in there to really make a really interesting Mm. You know, Dan Cormier versus Stipe, Dan Cormier versus John Jones. Imagine your Romero versus uh, John Jones. That'd be an interesting. One. Mm. But Jones is coming back now. Too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, quick breakdown on the uh, just a curiosity sake, the Holly Holm fight versus Cyborg because I've heard people mm -hmm. say that Holly did amazing against her, and then I've heard people say that that. She just got picked to pieces. What's your viewpoint? Both females brought exactly what they needed to do. Mm. Holly Holm was the one who pressed a completely different strategy. Mm -hmm. Her strategy was GSP. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what she was trying to do is she was trying to land damage mm -hmm. enough in the pocket and then stifle Chris Cyborg's arms in the upper body clinch, lay on her. Don't worry if she's getting underhooks. Lay weight on the underhooks to make her arms tired mm -hmm. so that she wasn't as much of a threat in the striking when they inevitably broke apart because Cyborg's so strong, you're not gonna keep her there forever, but make her utilize energy in mm -hmm. a specific energy system yeah. to get off the cage. Then it's gonna be easier to strike with her. So she did that mm -hmm. to a varying degree of effect. Mm -hmm. So Holly had good moments in that bout and because she's a well-conditioned athlete, she was able to do it for a prolonged period, but it didn't work as well as she needed it to work in order to gain the victory. Mm -hmm. And Cyborg slowly but surely was able to land the more aggressive, more damaging shots and was able to attain cage position and dominance uh, once she felt what the game plan was. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you put that kind of game plan on, you give... You're only giving people windows of opportunity. They have to, they, they won't even think about it. They'll take those windows of opportunity. Uh, and I believe that's what's happened. So there was a clear strategy. And I believe that strategy was a smart strategy. And it was employed mm -hmm. to, you know, a good percentage. Mm -hmm. But Chris Cyborg was the better fighter, mm -hmm. better fight IQ, better athlete on the yeah. evening. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. All right, last question I got for you. Uh, we've kind of gone down a little bit of a UFC kind of rabbit hole, oh, yeah, but that's, that's okay. all right. I, I enjoy your perspective. Um, so we've obviously got Ben Sassoli coming through. Uh, do you watch The Ultimate Fighter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watch it. So we've got him coming through. He obviously, um, when was it? Uh, when was the fight with Mike Turner? A couple of fights ago, yeah. Yeah, early in the year, March, wasn't it? I blacked it out of my mind. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> like I never want to remember. No, <laughs> That was a really entertaining fight. Was it? <laughs> I, it, it was. It was very good. I was having heart palpitations. Like. It was full on, but no, it was very entertaining. Um, both boys showed a lot of heart. Mm. Yeah. Um, what? How do you think Ben will go? Ben has a really good chance. Mm. Uh, ben works with fantastic heavy-hipped grapplers. Mm -hmm. He understands the game between body contact, uh, upper body body contact, physical. Uh, ability to wear on someone and to scramble mm -hmm. uh, and his power is undeniable but also his timing and his resilience is undeniable mm -hmm. uh, Turner also fought Jim Crute and Jim Crute I think found the same thing with Turner Turner is incredibly difficult to finish mm -hmm. and he'll test your capacity to do so uh, and then he'll test your resolve if you can't mm -hmm. uh, Ben's resolve was amazing mm. because Turner's percentage of finishing when he gets people to the ground was near 100% before he took Ben to the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, he wasn't able to finish Ben. Mm -hmm. 
in that round. Mm -hmm. So that's a testament to Ben. And if mm -hmm. he can withstand that type of pressure mm -hmm. from from Turner, you know, a jiu-jitsu black belt, mm -hmm. very, very heavy in his A game, in his area where he's won many fights before or after taking damage, that's a true testament to Ben. Mm -hmm. um, and you know what? I'm I'm a Ben Sully fan. I want to see him mm. do well. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Mm. Have you ever heard anyone say anything bad about Ben? I, I can't imagine why they would. No. You know, you can't really knock him. Mm. So yeah, I think he has the skills to do really well, and mm. he probably will. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, you're smart as hell. <laughs> no, I'm not that smart. <laughs> I'm just sitting here soaking it up. No, I it's told been brilliant. You ramble. No, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Cool. No um, worries. Anything else you want to add before we do wrap it up? Uh, go buy Batman comics. They're better than movies. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so there we have it. Go get yourself a couple of Batman comics. And while you're at it, go check out Nick's Instagram at instagram.com forward slash Nick underscore Batman underscore Hughes and check out the Trinity MMA Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Trinity Mixed Martial Arts and of course as always I pop all of the links in the podcast description and while you're at it if you want to check out a little bit more about what I do with the Live Free Movement, you can, of course, find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Live Free Movement and on Instagram at instagram.com forward slash Brianna Bowley. And until next time, what else is possible?